I still have those genetic vulnerabilities. So if I continue with my therapeutic diet and lifestyle, I'm in great shape. I'm hiking, I'm biking, I'm weightlifting, writing books, traveling the world, you know, making a big difference. If something happens that I'm re-exposed to too many toxins or re-exposed to my excluded foods, as I said, in six to 24 hours, I have incapacitating levels of pain. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kyberg, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. So we are sitting down today with Dr. Terry Walls. I am so excited to have you on. I was studying all weekend, watching your TED Talks, and you have this really profound story of transformation, especially as a practitioner. Can you share that story with our listeners? Sure. So I am an academic internal medicine doc. That means I teach at a major university in internal medicine. I was very skeptical of special diets and supplements complementary alternative medicine, and I taught my residents to be skeptical as well. And yeah, but God works in mysterious ways. I uh, had the privilege of developing a new weakness in my left leg, uh, ultimately had a big evaluation, which revealed lesions in my spinal cord. And I had a spinal tap, and a diagnosis of relapsing and remitting multiple sclerosis was made. I knew I wanted to treat my disease aggressively, so I sought out the best MS center I could find, saw their best people, took the newest drugs, and went steadily downhill anyway. After two years, that uh, Cleveland Clinic neurologist uh, told me about uh, the work of Lauren Cordain. I read his papers, his book, and after 20 years of being a vegetarian, I went back to eating meat. I continued to decline. The following year, I needed a tilt-recline wheelchair. My disease had transitioned away from relapsing remitting MS to progressive multiple sclerosis. I took the chemotherapy. I continued to decline. And then I was given Tizabri, this very potent uh, biologic drug. I continued to decline. And then I started on Celsept. At that point, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to reading the basic science and reading everything that I could to try and slow my decline because I knew with progressive MS, there is no spontaneous recovery anymore. You anticipate a 10 to 20% decline in function every year. So I would find studies for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease, ALS, and saw that mitochondrial dysfunction was key in all those areas. Even though no one was talking about it yet for MS, I thought it likely it was a big factor for MS. And so I designed a supplement protocol for my mitochondria that made my fatigue somewhat less. It slowed the speed of my decline. I'm very grateful. By 2007, I'm so weak I can no longer sit up. I have a zero-gravity chair that has my knees higher than my nose, one at work, one at home. The university and the VA have been very kind at redesigning my job multiple times to allow me to continue to work. I was on the Institutional Review Board reviewing research studies, and I was volunteering to read all the brain-related stuff so I could get more comfortable reading brain research. That summer, I discovered an organization called the Institute for Functional Medicine, took their course in neuroprotection, had a longer list of supplements, which I added. And then I had this big aha, like, yeah, I should really sort of combine 
and what I was learning from functional medicine, what I learned from the ancestral health movement, and I redesigned my paleo diet in a very specific way based on what I had learned uh, with functional medicine. And that December, December 26th, I really started this new way of eating. And within three months, I'm out of my wheelchair. I'm walking with a cane. And at six months, I'm walking without a cane. At nine months, I get on my bike, and I bike for the first time in, in almost a decade. Then uh, at 12 months, I'm able to do an 18.5-mile bicycle ride with my family. So this really changes how I think about disease and health. It would change the way I practice medicine, and it would change the type of research that I do. That frustration must have been tremendous. And there's this amazing photo of you in your your zero gravity your is it your zero gravity chair? Oh well, there's photos of me in my zero gravity chair where I'm I'm fully reclined. There's yeah. also photos in the short reclined wheelchair where I'm partially reclined. And I certainly look much older than my stated age. And then a year later, I'm out there on my bike looking, you know, pretty good. Yeah, you looked great. Was there I mean, that frustration must have been a tremendous because it was over years, right? Well, you know, uh, and before I went to medical school, I was an athlete. I competed in full contact taekwondo. I was a kick em up kind of girl. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so, but I'll tell you, when you have a progressive neurodegenerative condition, you uh, go through anger and denial and bargaining and grief and finally get to a place of acceptance. And in 2007, I was taking life one day at a time. I had no idea what might unfold, but I had resigned myself to uh, probably becoming bedridden, probably becoming demented. I was having increasingly horrific trigeminal neuralgia, these electrical face pains that were more and more difficult to control. I had not yet resigned myself to constant intractable pain. But I thought that was the future I was probably headed for. So like through that period where you're trying different medications, you're going to Cleveland Clinic, what does your diet and eating habits look like before you did all this? Yeah, before you kind of like went to paleo. I'll sort of uh, go through all of this. So I grew up on a farm, you know, eating uh, organic vegetables and the meats that we raise. I entered medical school and life gets busy and I'm sort of a rebellious kid. So I quit eating meat. My parents are convinced that I'm uh, ruining my health. It just makes me more resolved. And so I'm doing what looks like a very healthy diet, high in legumes, low in fat, plenty of vegetables. I uh, read Lauren Cardain's book in 2002. uh, And after a lot of prayer and meditation, I go back to eating meat. I remove all grain all legumes, all dairy. And so I'm, I'm implementing the autoimmune protocol according to Lauren Cordain. You know, I continue to decline. I had vitamins. You didn't notice a shift. You didn't notice like, no. I continue to decline. Yeah, okay. So the speed of my decline didn't really change. I had vitamins and supplements. But, but you know, I'm like, okay, I'm doing something. I don't know how long it's going to take. I decided to stay with it. I added vitamins and supplements, uh, and my fatigue is less. I can tell when I don't take my, my supplement cocktail, my fatigue is much worse. I perceive that the speed of my decline slows. I'm very grateful. I'm thrilled that, you know, I'm figuring out something that my physicians 
neither my primary care doc nor my neurology specialist has told me. So I'm very, very grateful for that. You know, I, and I really like the paleo diet. I, I think it has a lot to be said for it. But for me, it was not enough. And uh, the uh, functional medicine folks, I, I have an immense respect for them, but all of their supplements were not enough. I had to combine uh, the principles I was learning in the ancestral health movement and what I was learning in the functional medicine world and what I was learning uh, based on my own review of all the basic science for MS as well to create this very intentional and very intense therapeutic diet and lifestyle program. Yeah. Once I implemented it, the speed of my recovery is stunning. And if I go off that, you know, because of the complexities of travel, somebody accidentally serves me some gluten, my pain, my trigeminal pain turns on six to 24 hours to horrific levels once again. So to me, it's very clear that a therapeutic diet and lifestyle for me has profound impact on my health. Yeah. And now you teach practitioners, you have an online course, you have in-person gatherings. And you were mentioning that years ago, there were no dietary intervention studies relating to MS. Correct. So there was a cohort study that Swank did. People, he, he followed folks that he trained on a low saturated fat diet. And he followed them for 50 years. Uh, And so that was very interesting, deeply flawed because it's not randomized and people, you know, drop out. But still, he's followed people 50 years. Very helpful. I'm the very first person who does a intervention study going forward. So that was my first feasibility study done in 2009. I think in 2012, there was another small intervention study done by Yada. And in the meantime, I had done uh, three small pilot studies. And just now, in one of the papers we were writing, we went back and looked at how many intervention studies are going on right now, and there are 12. A wide variety of diets. It's tremendously exciting that this is happening, because dietary intervention study is a lot of work. It's a different kind of research. It's very different than doing a pill-based study, because it's very easy to do placebo-controlled trials when you're giving people pills. When you're giving people food, they know what they're eating. So it's a different kind of study design. And it's a lot more work to get people to give up foods that are familiar, eat foods that are unfamiliar, and maintain that. Because the food we eat is such a social part of our lives. It's a very big ask to give people to have them make a huge change in their eating patterns and in their social patterns as well. Can you talk about what kind of changes in a dietary perspective in, in the studies that you're asking people so, to shift to? So in my current study, we are comparing a low-saturated fat diet to basically the Walls diet. In the low-saturated fat arm, they're having less than 15 grams of saturated fat a day. So eating white fish, poultry without skin, whole grains, whole legumes, and very little fat of any type, no butter no bacon, no red meat. For most Americans, that's a pretty big change. If you're on the walls arm, you're eating no grain, no legumes, eating lots of vegetables, and you're eating uh, meat, fish, poultry, and you're having more fats. You can have some saturated fat. We'd love for you to have uh, lots of olive oil, some flax oil, hemp oil, 
we do have some targeted uh, supplements in there as well. I've heard so many people talk about how like fat is so essential for the brain and for the nervous system. And I'm curious, there are some people out there that really promote a, like a ketogenic diet, especially for any sort of neuroprotection. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Ketogenic diets can be incredibly helpful because it will shift you in terms of how you operate your mitochondria. And that can overcome some of the mitochondrial dysfunction might be, might be part of their neurologic disorder. Now, there are a variety of ways of doing that. One is having a diet higher in medium-chain triglycerides, like coconut oil, MCT oil. And depending on your personal genetics, that kind of diet might drive your cholesterol through the roof. And if your genes are like that, that diet is going to be really bad for you. The other thing you can do is do a uh, olive oil-based ketogenic diet where you're having lots of olive oil. In both these diets, you have to reduce the carbs. In the medium-chain triglyceride, you could probably have 50 to 80 grams of carbs. In an olive oil version, you can only have about 25 grams of carbs and still be in ketosis. Long-term, there's some challenges with that uh, in terms of uh, changes to your microbiome, changes to your hormonal balance, your hormonal signaling. And we all have to keep in mind, uh, when you're in ketosis, your body's getting the signals, there's not enough food, you're starving, so it changes your hormonal signaling. It's going to reduce your sex hormones to keep you from reproducing. It's not reliable birth control, though, so don't count on it. Uh, I want to make that very clear. But if your body is giving the signal that there's not enough nutrients for reproduction, you're not making enough sex hormones or making a lower amount. Long term, our sex hormones and our thyroid hormones are vital to maintaining healthy brain tissue. So the safety of long-term ketosis for the rest of your life, we don't know that question. The safety of ketosis for three months, six months, I would say since we all, our ancestors moved out of equatorial Africa into parts of the world that have winter, our ancestors have proven to us that ketosis three to six months out of the year uh, is fine. We survive, we thrive, we do well. So seasonal ketosis uh, is probably quite safe. Long-term ketosis for the rest of your life or for years, we don't know. That's an experiment that we've not yet done. Yeah. So a lot of the WALS protocol, from what I understand from your TED Talk, is around mitochondrial function and health. Yes. Is that true? And, you know, mitochondria is like such a hot topic these days, but I think a lot of people don't actually know <laughs> what it means. Yeah. So the, the mitochondria, when, oh, about a billion and a half years ago, the cyanobacter started making more oxygen and the oxygen levels in the atmosphere rose, it killed off about 98% of all life. Fortunately for us, there were some random mutations eventually that allowed some bacteria to use oxygen very, very effectively to make more energy or more ATP. These bacteria, they were basically making their first Krebs cycle and they thrived. They were engulfed by bigger bacteria and they developed a very happy symbiotic cooperative relationship that would evolve into multicellular organisms that would evolve into our earliest mitochondria. And so all of our tissues can now specialize by virtue of these ancient, ancient early bacteria that are now our mitochondria. 
So our tissues could evolve into brain tissue, to muscle tissue, to bones, to glands, to digestive tissue. And every tissue then, every organ, is dependent on mitochondria for the efficiency of that organ to work well. The organs that are most dependent on mitochondria are the ones with the highest energy needs. So your retina, your heart, and your brain. Mm. But all of our organs will depend on mitochondria, but it's those three organs that where, this, where mitochondrial dysfunction will first show up. Problems with retina, like age-related macular degeneration, that's a retinal problem from your mitochondria. Chronic pain, headache, cognitive decline, mood problems, that's a mitochondrial problem. And of course, heart failure, uh, that's a mitochondrial problem. So it sounds like you had been making nutritional changes, supplement changes, but then when you really shifted to a focus on mitochondria was when you started to really see big changes in your symptoms. That- well, so yeah, I, I made the nutritional changes. I, I did supplements focused on mitochondria. When I was really focused on the ancestral health, a lot of the ancestral health says, this is what you should not eat. But they were not really focused on, this is what you need to eat. When I had the aha, like, you know, I need to figure out what, what I should eat that specifically nourishes my mitochondria based on the supplement stuff I'd figured out from my research and functional medicine. So when I combined, here's what you need to eat, plus here's what you need to avoid, that's when it, my recovery was stunningly rapidly. Tremendous. And I think it's important to note that it's not... Like, you still have MS. Of course. Yeah. I still have those genetic vulnerabilities. So if I continue with my therapeutic diet and lifestyle, I'm in great shape. I'm hiking, I'm biking, I'm weightlifting, writing books from the world, you know, making a big difference. If something happens that I'm re-exposed to too many toxins or re-exposed to my excluded foods, as I said, in 6 to 24 hours, I have incapacitating levels of pain. Wow. What kind of toxins, when you're re-exposed to them, is it like mold? Like what, well, what kind of know, stuff? Actually, the thing I have to watch flying, because I'm, I'm traveling the world so much. Yeah. Uh, lecturing, teaching. So I have to be careful how many major flights I can take per month. I prefer one. I can't do more than two big flights a month. I keep readjusting my detox protocol to accommodate the flying. I also more recently feel like super terrible after I fly. I'm like squirting yes. like liposomal glutathione under my tongue. Yeah. What, what you do know, you think it is about so flying? There are several things. One, our planes are treated with pesticides to decrease the transportation of vermin. So we're exposed to the pesticides, insecticides. We're also exposed to the radiation. Yeah. And then the jet fuels are aerosolized, and we're having uh, jet fuel exposure as well. You know, Ooh, and actually, uh, uh, cognitive issues are, if you look at air cabin crew, flight attendants, pilots, they report higher issues of early cognitive decline. Wow. So you have multiple resources online, and I feel like it gives such hope for people who have MS or who are struggling with the symptoms? And what are some of those resources online that you can share with people? So we have a, a really great one-page handout that summarizes the key elements of the Walls diet. 
So if you go to terrywalls.com forward slash diet, this is a great handout to put up on your refrigerator. It's also quite beautiful. So I'll put in a plug-in for my designer. We'll drop it um, in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing that I do, unlike many of the writers in the ancestral health movement, nutrition movement, functional medicine movement, I actually do the research. So you know, the stuff I say, I test in clinical trials. So I'm doing trials, writing papers. So if you want to see some of the uh, papers we've got written, go to terrywalls.com forward slash papers. And you can get copies of the papers. You can also get a link to one of the online papers that has the videos of the gate changes that, you, that we're able to achieve when people you know, at baseline implement our uh, intervention and then 12 months later, how much gate improvement was achieved. That's amazing. So what kind of transformations? Like if, I, if you were like describing a video, because so, we do a lot of like gait analysis in the clinic. So how could you say? I want to set the stage with progressive MS, you anticipate a 10 to 20% decline each year. So with progressive MS, if all we do is get people to hold flat, that would be like a home run. People pay, you know, $100,000 a year to hope to not progress anymore. So yeah. that's the stage. If all we do is keep people flat, uh, that would be phenomenal. As a group, we kept the group flat. Half of our folks continue to decline, which is what you'd ex- you expect everyone to continue to decline. But half of our folks had clinically meaningful improvement, where they went from needing two walking sticks or a walker to none. We had one lady who came to us using a cane for short distances, a walker for and a long distance if she went out shopping. She was jogging by six months. What? That's Uh, amazing. We had another lady with progressive multiple sclerosis, primary progressive. Nothing helps those folks improve strength. Primary progressive MS. She went from needing two walking sticks being very stiff at three months to walking faster with no walking six at three months. Tremendous. Do you have like a story in mind that you're, I mean, probably other than your own, which the photos are mind blowing, like a story of transformation that's like really sticks out or is really profound? Yeah. I'm thinking about one of the people who, who now helped me run our live event She's a business owner, and she was struggling with fatigue and could tell that, you know, thinking was getting slower, much more challenging. And she was really wondering how much longer she would be able to continue running her business. She was in that very first study that we, we ran, and her mental clarity improved, her energy improved. She is much more functional. Her business is thriving. Her expectation is that she would not still be working. That lady that I mentioned earlier who is jogging, she was working half-time, and she was thinking she was going to have to stop working because fatigue was so profound, and it was getting more and more difficult to conduct the activities of daily life, to go shopping, prepare her meals. And so she was envisioning that she'd have to go to a skilled nursing care because she couldn't manage to live independently. 
Well, she is still working. She's decided to stay at halftime work. She's very comfortable driving six hours to see her son, who since moved away and playing with her grandchildren and carrying her grandchildren and her uh, toddlers now because of her remarkable improvement. The other lady with prior progressive MS, I just ran into her again when I was down out at one of my community events. And she, we're 10 years further in. And so if she had not discovered my work, she would have been profoundly disabled. And she's still walking around without canes, doing great. You know, and, and this is when I, when I give my talks, particularly when it's here in the Midwest, you know, I give my talk, I do the Q&A, and then I'm sort of like, I'm at a revival meeting. People are standing up, and they're saying like, I want you to know, I, you know, I have, and insert the name of the diagnosis in her case, primary progressive MS. I implemented the Walls Protocol 10 years ago, and it's had this huge impact on my life. And then the next person stands up and says, yes, you know, and, and uh, they share their recovery story. That is a very typical uh, experience. It's, it's sort of like a, very much like a revivalist kind of meeting. Nice. What does your workout look like? You mentioned lifting weights. Oh, well, here's my routine in the morning. I get up between five and six. And I don't sit alarm. I just wake up when I wake up. And then I do a brief meditation in the morning. I will go into my study, hook myself up to my electrical stimulation unit, and I start doing my mat exercises. And I will do that for 45 minutes to an hour. And I'm dialing up my current, moving my electrodes, dialing up my current, and I'll dial up my current to as much intensity as I can tolerate, work out, then I keep dialing it up. And it's creating like muscular like contraction stimulation. Right. Okay. Right. So I do e-stem as I work out. Then I will go start my tea, get my tea brewing. Then I go down and I go to a vibrating platform workout. And now I do a 10-minute workout on my vibrating platform. I'm trying to rebuild my skeletal strength because of all those steroids I took. I lost uh, mineralization. And my physicians are like, well, we don't see people getting stronger bones every year. And you're 65. That shouldn't be happening. But you are. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, well, you know, it can happen, folks. Yes. And then I come back up and I make my tea and uh, some golden milk and mushrooms and all of that. And then I go sit in my sauna for 20 to 40 minutes, according to my day. Then I'm reading some of my uh, functional medicine, ancestral health, latest research kind of stuff. Uh, And then I uh, come to work. Once a week, I will swim instead of doing e-stim. Anyway, I do this 45 minutes to an hour of e-stem, and then during the day, I have a portable e-stem unit, uh, and I put on electrodes targeting my glutes, and I'll do another one to two hours of e-stem for the glutes. When it's not winter, then I'd be biking to and from work uh, five miles each way, so that's a 10-mile bike ride. So like self-care is really essential in terms of prioritization. It's one of the best things I, I did was I, I decided to retire from the VA so I'd have more time for the research and more time for self-care. Except if I really want to impact the research uh, community, the research that I'm doing, and to be willing to travel the world to do the amount of teaching that I'm doing, then I needed to limit my work to 50%. Yeah. So do you ever get, in the beginning of this journey, 
you mentioned that you were skeptical, right? Yes. Do you get that skepticism now from other oh my God, people? That I was like nuts. So, <laughs> when, when, when I first recovered, people were thrilled that I'm recovered. And then I changed my practice. And I'm talking less about drugs, more about food and, and uh, therapeutic lifestyle. And my colleagues started complaining to me that I had to go meet with my chief of staff and the chair of medicine to explain what was going on. But to their credit, and I knew to bring my scientific papers to explain the rationale of why, uh, and they, they taught me that I'd be very careful in the medical record that Terry, you have to be, be able to survive a peer review audit from somebody who, who hates functional medicine, hates ancestral health medicine. So I learned how to be very careful that I was optimizing cellular health, mitochondrial function, that I was not treating disease, I'm just creating wellness, and monitoring for medication tolerance. I document things more appropriately in the medical record. I now am very careful to have disclaimers on my, on my website, in my book, on my materials, I have to to the public so people understand I'm not treating disease, I'm improving cellular function and monitoring them for medication side effects because medication needs may well change. Yeah. And when I made that change, my colleagues were much more comfortable. <laughs> and then I'm doing the science and I'm getting these stunning results. And every year at the science week for the College of Medicine and for the Department of Medicine, you know, I'm presenting our pilot studies and the results, and we have the research poster. And, you know, then I started having these videos, and people are like, wow, this is very impressive. Then our papers start getting accepted. And then originally, I'm getting my work funded by small philanthropists, then we're getting larger grants. Now I'm getting larger grants still. And so over these 10 years, I've been doing this, I've gone from eccentric to maybe dangerous to well, maybe innovative, to brilliant, to visionary. And, and now I have a secondary appointment in the Department of Neurology. And I'm teaching their residents. And you know, I, I just met with the chair. We have a new chair. He, he was very excited to meet with me, talk. And he and I are writing grants together now. Amazing. You know, and the beauty of all of this is that yeah, I'm a little socially clueless. And that's worked out because mostly all this chaos was out of my field of vision. I was just doing the stuff that I believed in, what I thought was the morally correct thing to do. And that if I would tell the public what I was doing and why, in that if they think vegetables are pretty safe, if they think meditation is pretty safe, if they're willing to go see a physical therapist and design an exercise program for them, that they could begin to implement these things with their primary care doc while they're waiting for me to do the peer-reviewed published trials and waiting for me to change the standard of care. Because it'll probably take 10, another 10 to 20 years to change the standard of care. Although actually I think it may change within 10. But progressive MS is progressive. If they all wait for the standard of care to change, a lot of those folks will be demented and in nursing homes. So I think it's interesting to be proactive, right? And yes. to like at what age should we care about our mitochondria? <laughs> as soon as, it, well, your mother should care. Because, yeah. we, we, you know, we all want our children to do well. We want our children to behave reasonably well. We want them to do well in school. We want them to do well with their peers, to learn how to interact well socially. 
For that to happen, those kids need healthy mitochondria. We want ourselves to be able to take care of them because uh, mom's got a lot to do. Dad's got a lot to do. We all have a lot to do and to be successful in whatever role that is in your family life, your work life, your social life. We can't be successful if we have ill mitochondria. Yeah. Can you give us like a teeny little peek into maybe like your very essential supplements that you feel like? Two things I'd have people do. One is please know your vitamin D level Mm. and get your vitamin D level and then take supplements to get your level the top half the range. And depending on your skin pigment, you'll need a little bit of supplement or you need a whole lot of supplement. The darker the skin and the further you are from the equator, the more supplement you would need for your vitamin D. And upper range is like, is it 60 to 80? Is that? Depends on the reference lab. The lab might give a top level of 70. It might give a top level of 80. Okay. And then if you're taking vitamin D supplement, the vitamin D helps you absorb vitamin D, will help you absorb calcium. But if you don't have enough vitamin K2, the calcium will go to your heart valve and your blood vessel walls where it'll do terrible things. So we get vitamin K2 from the bacteria metabolizing the greens that we eat. So if you follow the walls protocol, you eat a big plate full of greens every day. Ideally, you have some grass-fed liver once a week. That will get you uh, K2. And depending on the amount of vitamin D supplement that you take, you may want to take a K2 supplement as well. Awesome. So everyone get their vitamin D levels checked. (laughs) Check. Think about do you need vitamin D supplement. And if you're taking a vitamin D supplement, you must be sure you're getting plenty of vitamin K2. So the calcium goes to your teeth and bones as opposed to your heart valves and blood vessel walls. Yeah. Was there anything like before you started to see significant changes in your symptoms? Was there anything mentally or mindset wise that you told yourself to not get discouraged? Well, uh, you know what, what helped a lot was I have uh, two young children at diagnosis ages five and eight. I had thought I was going to teach my kids resilience by being an athlete, going camping, hiking, wilderness travel. And I'm seeing myself getting more and more disabled. So I have to reimagine who I am, how I'm going to parent, how I'm going to teach them resilience. And I realize I can either give up and I teach them that when life is difficult, you give up. Or I can get up and go to work every day and not complain and give them chores and talk about, yep, life's not fair, but you do the best you can anyway. That was the key part, was having my kids, knowing I, I, the most important thing for me was teaching them resilience and that life is not fair, so what? You get up and do this the best you can anyway. My kids had chores, both my son and my daughter at various times complained bitterly about doing, having to do the laundry, that none of the friends knew anything about laundry soap, and it wasn't <laughs> fair, they're stamping their feet. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that is so unfair. That is so unfair. (laughs) And they're stamping, and why are you making me do this? Well, because it's your job. You know, it's not fair that I can't do it. It's not fair that I have MS, but I have to go to work anyway. And I'm going to do the best that I can anyway, even though life's not fair. And this is your job, and you're going to have to do it. 
And then both kids at their various way then stamped their foot and said, I think you're glad you have MS. So you can lecture me about chores. <laughs> and, you know, I just laugh. They're, they're both horrified that I tell that story now. It's like, you know, that's just developmentally what young children will do. But we'll all face terrible things in their life. They're going to face terrible things growing up as well. Uh, and the mark of resilience is how you take that terrible thing, figure out how to go forward, and what is the gift in that terrible thing. Yeah. And if we can do that, then we'll be resilient. And if we can't, then we'll wilt. I bet they're super resilient now. They're <laughs> very resilient. They're very, <laughs> they're very successful. One is a state senator at age 27. Wow. And the other, yeah, she graduated with a BFA in painting. And of course, I'm thinking like, dear God, I wonder, yeah, will you ever be able to, you know, pay your rent and survive? But, <laughs> but she is, you know, uh, those two kids have made something called the Women Cards, a deck of playing cards and now Girl Power Deck. And they've been very successful taking out business loans and having a, you know, a, a business plan. And like, wow, they're making it. They're doing very well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was so great chatting with you. And thank you for all the work that you do, the research, just everything. It's tremendous. You know, it was certainly very difficult to have all those years of progressive decline and horrific pain. But it all needed to happen to learn the stuff that I did and to be having the opportunity to make the a difference I'm making now. So I, I am profoundly uh, grateful yeah. for all of it. Yeah. And I'm sure you're touching thousands, if not more, lives. Well, with the TED Talk, that's uh, 3.2 million now. <laughs> Sorry, millions. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone should check out your TED Talk. There will be tears. There will be tears. <laughs> Terry, thank you so much. It was so great chatting with you. You're very welcome. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends... Or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.